up, everybody? Welcome to your favorite video game podcast. If not, then it should be. Uh, Bounty Board, episode 143. We've done a lot of these. I'm your host, as always, Caleb Sawyer. And with me, I have a very special guest. And number three of the Habibis. I've now had all of them on my podcast. So You've got them like all. A... <laughs> yeah, I'm the, I'm the Habibi uh, Pokemon master now. Uh, I have uh, Fauzi Mesmer on with me, who is uh, vice president of editorial at Ubisoft. How's it going, Fauzi? Uh, it's good to be here. Did you know that 143 is my favorite number? Is it really? Or no, are no, you make just it, make it, make it up. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, I want to make this episode extra special for both of us. <laughs> for sure. Then it's, then it's both of our favorite numbers. Let's just say that. And then they have to figure out if we're telling the truth or not. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on, Fauzi. Uh, as I said, I've had both Osama and Rami on. Uh, so yeah. it was only appropriate that I got you on. Yeah, I mean, Why'd... like... Uh... It's an Arab thing to try to one up each other. So like they already like I can't <laughs> I can't not be able to uh, to match up when they talk about this. <laughs> yeah, sure. Now you yeah, that's why you're trying to make this the best one ever, right? So you can yeah, brag exactly. about it. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, I met Rami in LA at the Game Awards uh, in person, and the oh, first sweet. thing I tried to do um, was figure out. We went and ate uh, lunch. We went and got sushi. <laughs> he started talking about. How Arabs play the I'll pay for it game <laughs> yeah. and how like everyone has to offer, but you don't want to <laughs> offer too seriously because you don't want to actually pay for it. You want to like just offer enough <laughs> so that it gets back around the table to the person who offered first. And then at the end of the meal, he put his wallet on the table and was like, so I'm doing it. And we were like, but is it Western rules or Arab rules? And he was like, you figure it out. <laughs> and it was simultaneously the most funny thing and most intimidating thing I think I've ever encountered. <laughs> It's so, it's really it's really confusing every time you go out for a meal uh, going like am I gonna pay for this or somebody else gonna pay for this how much money should I take with me uh, yeah <laughs> you never you never know you never yeah. know how these things are gonna pan out it's like am I gonna get stuck with this I should offer but not offer too much uh, but there's always the people that like want to unup you on this. So there's the yeah. people that that pretend to go to the bathroom to intercept the bill on its way to the toilet and then pay for oh. it. Yeah. And then you have to catch them. So if you see them, you have to go and tackle them or something. Otherwise, you know, you're not Arab enough and you have to like haggle <laughs> over the bill away from the table now. <laughs> yeah. And it's a scene yeah. across the entire restaurant. Yeah. My culture is great, <laughs> especially when it comes to these kinds of things. When it comes to yeah. making a scene, <laughs> we do it we do it the best <laughs> that's amazing yeah rami talked about taking shohei yoshida out to that sushi place and like paying for it and shohei being really mad and then later <laughs> or i think shohei paid the first time and rami was upset so the next time they went rami caught the waiter in between going to the bathroom and paid for it yeah and then Classic shohei move. got really upset and the next time they went, I guess Shohei called ahead and paid before they got there. <laughs> so you guys, y'all just take the take the the fight and draw it out over the battlefield as far as you can. It's, it's intense. Uh, when I was in Japan, I like you know uh, I put a bunch of people in because like you know by default in in my culture you should always try, if especially if you're like inviting somebody over for or like you're having dinner with somebody or lunch with somebody for the first time. Showing hospitality is so important. So sure. you gotta 
you got to you got to pay the bill. So like but in Japan <laughs> sure. it's like you actually make people lose a lot of face by paying for them for their food and I didn't know that. So like every time I thought I was doing the hospitable thing I was actually embarrassing a lot of friends. And oh, and no. eventually like this one guy like he was like you know last year we went out for lunch and this year we're going out for lunch and last year you paid this year I hesitated about coming because I thought you were going to pay. I was like you know what? Thank you for telling me. Because <laughs> yeah. I would have, we would have never eaten again if you've never, like, you know, opened up about this. <laughs> yeah, I may have accidentally insulted you into never coming to eat with me ever again. Yeah, it's funny because Americans don't care. They Americans yeah. are so like, I got it, and everyone else is like, cool, thanks. <laughs> Just lets it happen. <laughs> if I go out, basically right before we get up, everyone kind of looks at each other, and then like cautious conversations will start again and like you're trying to avoid bringing it up the first person that brings it up though generally everyone's like all right at least in my group of friends i know people that are like no yeah. no no i'll get it <laughs> but <laughs> when you when you're a, a an independent journalist from the midwest right and if someone offers to go to lunch or asks you to go to lunch and then they offer to pay i'm like oh I work for myself. Yeah, you can. You could definitely pay for my lunch. That's fine. <laughs> you need to get you some Arab friends. So you know, get seven of those. That you you sort it for like at least seven <laughs> meals a week. Yeah, yeah. I can at least I can at least spread it out if I have to over a couple. Exactly. Of months. Yeah. There's a couple of places in town too. Like we have a really good uh, Afghani web uh, website. What we have a really good Afghani restaurant called Samim. That like Ooh. I've tried to go to, but because I live in the Midwest and most of my friends are very Midwestern. And in a large percentage white, I'm like, let's go get, let's go get Afghani food. And they're like, mm. but the few people I know that go say it's great. And I'm like, I just got to get the right friends. So hook me up. Fauzi, hook me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, 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 if I'm ever in town, uh, we should go. 100%. And, uh, and it's going to be on me. So, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I'll just let that happen. I guess. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, if you're ever in St. Louis, I think that there's a more pressing issue we have to figure out because St. Louis is mm -hmm. not really a city that people travel to. But I love that. I, I think I, I think you commented on this a few months ago. My my buddies and I were trying to figure out a way to like come up with something new to do with the website. And one of my favorite things is food. Obviously, we've already been talking about it. But <laughs> um, Nerdy Bits, my website as a title is really nice because you can turn it into a lot of different things. Like we did a fitness thing for a while called Nerdy Fit. Um, our like in-depth videos on YouTube are called Bits and Pieces because we, we play with the word. And I was like, cool. we should do Nerdy Bites. And we uh -huh. should do a, a video podcast where you go to a restaurant and eat with game developers and talk to them over dinner. And I remember bringing it up to... Uh, I think Osama, and he was like, yes. And then I was like, we just yes. got to get Fauzi and Rami. And you were like, I would do this. So I just yes. have to figure out how to get all three of you in one place. And then we can but go you get said... kebab, and you guys can argue over which kebab is better. <laughs> you said the magic word. You said food. <laughs> yeah, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. I travel for food, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, food's the best the best thing, honestly. I, I uh, There's a couple of people that I've, I've known over time that have worked in, like, Michelin star restaurants. And so yeah. every time I like go to that city, I'm like, wait, I'm I'm getting free food, right? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's the best. It's the best. Outside of food, though, you've been working in games for decades. So why, uh, for people that may not know who you are, why don't you uh, give us a little Spark Note history lesson of of who Fauzi <laughs> Mesmer is and what you've done? 
Cool, man. Yeah, I can give you um, a bit about... They're, they're probably only like 50 minutes. Like, what, what is a, hab- a Habibi? There's three of them? What does that mean? They <laughs> <laughs> started the podcast and they were like, I'm already lost. What's happening? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so um, I'm, a, I'm a game designer. I've been uh, making games for 19 years. I started off as an independent game developer in Jordan, in the Middle East. That's where I'm from. So I studied computer science, and me and my friends, we kind of got together to make a, a Game Boy Advance game back in the day. Nice. Um, so we got together, like as indie as it gets, we started making a game. And uh, yeah, since then, I worked for a bunch of independent studios in Jordan. And I've done nothing else than be a, a, game, a game designer. So my... My portfolio is a little bit of a rainbow because like I've touched on so many different types of games and genres. So like from Game Boy Advance to PC, 360, Facebook games, Flash games, portable games, smartphone yeah. games, to AAA, you know, I've done a, a, a bit of everything and uh, a career that has taken me uh, around the world, really. Like, uh, so I'm currently living in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah. And... Uh, that is country number seven for me to live in. So like I've nice. lived in multiple countries in the Middle East, in New Zealand, Japan, Germany, and now in Sweden. Um, started up at Ubisoft uh, late uh, last year. And before that, I was heading up uh, design at DICE. Uh, we were looking after the Battlefield franchise and the Battlefront franchises. So I was there for the life service of uh, Star Wars Battlefront 2, Battlefield 5 and uh, launched uh, Battlefield 2042 before I moved over to Ubisoft. Um, so that's the part of uh, my career in which like, uh, that is about making games, but there's two parts of it uh, uh, as well, because if I'm not making games, I'm either playing them or talking about them. So the playing games part of sure. my career is to play some competitive, uh, some games competitively in the past. So uh, uh, way back in All the right. day, played some competitive StarCraft, played some some street fighter here and there so uh did did, uh, did a bit of that I'm, I'm terrible now i just watch but you know did some playing back then um <laughs> uh, yeah, sure and um the talking about games is that i i teach game design pretty much everywhere i've ever lived in so i i currently teach game design in future games at stockholm i think it's like uh, one of the best schools in game development uh, in the country maybe it has a ranking globally uh, but I've also nice. taught like pretty much in every country I've lived in as well. So I taught in Berlin Games Academy, I taught in Oakland University of Science and Technology and a bunch of other places. I'm very active in the academic community when it comes to like game design and development. Sure. And in uh, 2018, I released my uh, first book called Al Khalab in the Art of Game Design, or Al Khalab fi Fantasmim al which is the first book to be written about game design in Arabic, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, it's basically I wanted to write a book about game design so that other people starting up from the region don't have to learn a second language to get into the business, basically, because that's sure. kind of what yeah. I what I had to go through myself. Yeah. And uh, me and two other game developers, Rami Ismail and Osama Dorias, we're three Arab game developers. We get together and we drink tea and then we record ourselves drinking tea on a, pod- on a weekly podcast called The Habibis. So now everything's making sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Context has uh, been given. In which we talk about uh, game development and uh, Arab culture and food, yeah. mostly. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, so that's the Habibis that, is 19 great. 19 years in five minutes. 
Hey, it was a really, really good summary and easy to follow. So good job. You've done this <laughs> before. <you>. <laughs> I might have. I love that. So my favorite part about Habibi is, I mean, I remember when it first came out and I was excited that y'all were all doing it. But then uh, I think the favorite thing that I realized just uh, like an episode or two in is, I, I say the favorite thing, I'm about to list three things. One, y'all talk about food all the time and that rules, <laughs> especially like food that like isn't something that I isn't food that i'm generally talking about right you're talking about like arab culture and arab food and arguing over the best kebab and i'm over here like <laughs> which one should i go to i'm gonna listen to their <laughs> arguments and then choose from there um but on top of that like <clears throat> uh, the three of you rami osama and yourself are all really really active when it comes to like helping developers get to if not where you are at least into the industry right like trying to help ease the 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 entry for, sure. for all of all of the people that want to give it a shot um what about coming up uh, you know making games yourself led you to want to do that or is that something that you think you always kind of had in you no you you're right it, it's it was absolutely personal for me because like you know starting up in the middle east like i said it's just me and a bunch of knuckleheads you know they're my friends and we <laughs> wanted to make a game but we had no idea what we were doing you know um starting up in a region we did not have an industry um, I've never, like, at, back then, I haven't met the game developer ever. So other than, sure. like, you know, pictures of game developers in magazines that we used to import from the UK or from the US, I, you know, or, or from Japan, I've never really seen one in person, let alone, sure. like, had the ability to ask them questions or something like that. So everything I've learned about game development, I was either, like, you know, import uh, uh, books in English tried to get it to Jordan and read it and then try to apply what I learned theoretically into the games I was making and naturally just make a lot of mistakes Yeah, and just learn from them. So like, you know, I've learned a lot just by screwing up mostly, you know, yeah, and sure. it, you know, it took me years to learn what like, um, um, if I, if I've met somebody to kind of like tell me, maybe you shouldn't waste your time on this and focus on that. Sure. Uh, I, like a 10 minute conversation, I imagine would have saved me months, if not years. Yeah, 100%. And like, you know, that a big part of like, you know, there was a big drive for me that I wanted to like, you know, go outside of the Middle East and work with other developers is that like the first time I worked from like, you know, with a company, with an established company that have released games before and all of this, I was like, oh my God, all of these are actual real game developers. And I've been doing it for six years at this point, and I'm still not convinced that I'm a game developer. Sure. And I'm yeah. like looking around and go like, oh, <clears throat> these guys, they're the real deal. And I'm like, you know, yeah, like the, yeah. The, 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 the noob that just been, you know, learning things by myself. And and like turns out like a lot of the things I learned, I learned by myself had some value. But like up until I got to that point in which like I am in the community, in the industry, working on games, releasing games, talking to people that have released games in which like I could share experiences, uh, learn that they've also gone through similar things, different things, like had that ability to share. Uh, you know, getting into it, it almost became uh, personal that I, I want to become the person that I wish I met. That's awesome. When I started. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So, like, I, um, so since then, ahead. it became like a personal mission that I want to, like, you know, um, if somebody reaches out, I, you know, answer back. If there's any way I can help out, I can. Uh, the book I wrote was basically that. And then, like, the entire content of that book, I recorded as a, in video format on a, on a, on a website called edrak.org, which is a non-for-profit organization 
um, so that people who can't afford to buy the book can learn everything that's in the book for free. Sure. Because I just want people to learn. And like, yeah. uh, I want just want to help people out and uh, help them, you know, go through uh, uh, hopefully easier than I have. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. There's a the Midwest. So, you know, the United States has has its fair share of game um, developers uh, all over the place. But what mm -hmm. you end up seeing is this kind of like an outlining of the country, right, where it's yeah. all the East Coast, it's all the West Coast, it's all South and Texas, and then it's up North in Chicago. But like the middle is a very hollow um, space that often is kind of devoid of people that are doing that. So I just started teaching at a university here in St. Louis, and it's been really, really cool to help these kids realize that like largely because of the last couple of years, which were rough, honestly, like literally, yeah. but the last couple of years has kind of shown uh, developers that have the capability that like, we can do this remotely. We can do this without like needing to be in these expensive cities. And so like being able to talk to these kids who just a few years ago were like, I'm going to have to go to college and then move away from my family, away from my friends um, that like they can do it themselves and giving them the tools to do that. And, and, you know, tools being so democratized now, like you can just hop into Unity and start working or Game Maker or Unreal or, you know, whatever engine you can find and start working. But the number one thing that I uh, have noticed myself is that the imposter syndrome thing that you mentioned is it's so widespread. And I don't think yeah. it's a bad thing. I think it's like one of my favorite things about the industry because you end up interacting with people that are very helpful and are very humble. They're like, no, yeah, I feel like I don't belong. So like, of course <laughs> I'm gonna try and help other people feel like they belong. Um, when I went to the Game Awards in LA, like there was a moment at the at the Hyatt, I think it was the Hyatt, whatever hotel we were at down at the bar, there was a moment where my uncle and I, who have both been independent journalists for a decade, wow. sat there and we were, I was like, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't belong here. Like. Phil Spencer's walking past me and I see like Alana Pierce and I see a bunch of devs from Bungie and a bunch of devs from, you know, all of these different studios. And I'm like, I don't, this is wild. And it's you cool do. because you end up like one that that's my favorite thing is when anybody talks to you and you're like, man, I don't know. I feel like I should just like go to the gas station across the street. Cause I don't belong. Everyone's like, no, you do. You 100% do. Mm. Um, you do. So it's so welcoming. And then also, like, it's nice to know that everybody kind of has that bug in them. Everyone's kind of like, this is so cool. I feel like I'm getting away with something. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my favorite things about uh, about the game industry. You So if you've taught at every two, this is a two part question. If okay. you've taught in every city slash country that you've lived in, are you then mm -hmm. like conversational in like six or seven languages <laughs> um not six languages but uh four i would say nice all right yeah. that's probably a very yeah. marketable skill <laughs> i'm fluent in arabic and english uh uh very good in uh in japanese okay in german all right nice yeah i did a, i interviewed the there's a team called okomotive they're a small Indie team in Zurich, they made uh, Far Alone Sales, and they've got Far Changing Tides coming out next month. And, like, at the end of the podcast, after we'd finished recording, I realized that, like, they all speak German. 
Because like the <laughs> recording ended and then they started talking German oh, to yeah. each other. And and I took like six years of German and I was like, oh no, I could have like said something in German. And now our Discord chat that we have together is like Danglish. It's like a mix of Deutsch and English. Oh, nice. We're just kind of switching back and forth. <laughs> it's great. Um, That's cool. But my second part of the question is what um when you teach, what do you what do you generally like lean towards teaching? Is it you know, is it like broad video game design like stuff or is mm-hmm. it specifics? Okay. Um, so uh, just a comment on the first one as well. Like I, f- I found also that it seems like English is almost the universal language uh, when it comes sure. to game dev education. So like even in Germany, um, I taught in English and that was uh, pretty, pretty okay. All the students yeah. spoke uh, pretty good English. So that wasn't, uh, language was never a big barrier. Um, yeah. America's, in, in famously some places. The, America's famously the only country that doesn't teach its doesn't put any real importance on teaching its kids the ability to speak anyone else's language. They're, we're extremely selfish. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit that. <laughs> Sorry, go on. It's very hard to learn a language. So if you, if you, if you don't have to, I understand why you would skip it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and the, the, the topics I usually teach, um, so I've, mostly been focused on game design 101 so kind of like basics of like conceptualization mechanics dynamics and loops and how does these things work together so usually when i teach in universities or like i'm giving a course it would be like uh, either like a a semester that ends up with a project or like a, a couple of full day workshops just just focuses on explaining the concept of how game what game design is not what game development is and like you know focusing on like how to how to understand and analyze video games so that you can analyze um, your own designs so to say like ideation over uh over production exactly and in that because like um i believe that Tools will always advance faster than we can learn learn to teach, so to say. So, like, even sure. if I'm really good at the tools that I'm using nowadays, in five years I'm gonna be outdated. Whereas, like, how you approach the concept of design, uh, that is kind of you know evergreen. The tools just facilitate yeah. what you're supposed to be doing. Sure. So, I, I'm I'm almost always focused on the why and the what, not really the how. Sure, uh, 100%. And how I teach generally. So like even the projects, uh, a lot of times, like I don't ask for a software project. I ask for yeah. a game. It could be us chasing each other around the room if uh, if it plays in a way. So in any any means that can explain what a game is, that we can go through that. Uh, but in most recent years, I've been like doing a lot of research into the creative process itself. So like uh, what are ideas, um, where do they come from, and what is originality? And that kind of concept. So I've been doing a lot of research and I've been doing a lot of like, um, in addition to like my usual game design workshops and courses, I've been doing like, you know, guest lectures. I've done even a couple in in the US, like I've done one in NYU last year, I think. Sure. Um, in which I talk about, like, I, I basically try to discuss and analyze what, like, how do our brains functions into coming up with ideas? Yeah. And how... And by understanding this, then maybe we can try to work our way into creating original ideas. And then I investigate what does originality even mean? 
And as I started to to present this topic a bit to um, students and their professors, a lot of people kind of suggested that I should start probably put this down somewhere. So it's a topic of yeah. my upcoming book that I've been uh, working on um, with awesome. CRC Press. So they they're expecting me to finish it within the next couple of years. Let's hope, like you know, I, another deadline for on a game dev. So <laughs> yeah. No, no pressure, but yeah, it's a, it's a topic that I've been like very passionate about and I've been working on quite a bit. So, so that's, that's been awesome. like finding its way into my classes sure, <laughs> uh, in sure. one way or another. Well, without giving away the, the, you know, the core of your book, um, that you're working mm -hmm. on, uh, also, if you ever need anyone to edit it, not edit it, but like review it early, just let me know. I'll, I'll be willing to absolutely. Um, I will but, totally take you up on this. Yes. Um, <laughs> without making you give away what you're going to write about, what uh, what kind of things have you kind of discovered in that process? Because, I mean, a little history on me, because I guess you don't know what where I come from. I, I went to school initially for, for architecture uh, mm. and then discovered, like, after a, uh, a full semester, maybe even a full year, that the school didn't – I wanted to do – I wanted to draft. I wanted to draw. I wanted to be, like, a, a visual, like – drafting architect and the my advisor thought i wanted to be a construction architect and his description was like there's two kinds of architects there's the artsy fartsy kind that make pretty drawings and then there's construction architects that make those pretty <laughs> take those pretty drawings and turn them into something and i immediately was like i wanted to be the artsy fartsy one and he was like oh yeah you can't do that here <laughs> so <laughs> I had been he there was for a trying year. to lead you away from it i don't know if you noticed <laughs> Yeah, so he, he uh, threw some hints in that he didn't like one of them. Um, but I'd been there a year. I'd made a bunch of friends. I'd made a commitment. So I ended up, like, dropping that program, got into history for a little bit, and then realized, like, as a brown student in the United States, that history is kind of just a bunch of white people deciding what's important. <laughs> I was like, eh. <laughs> uh, and then I went into creative writing and uh, got into narrative design and stuff. But my school didn't have any game design classes, which I'm always a little spiteful about. But <laughs> uh, I did play with tools like Inkle and, and, and uh, stuff like that, making like narrative and like branched narrative games. But to get back to my question, like since then I've been a creative writer, I've done world building. Um, I kind of loan that to people. There's a lot of indie studios in the St. Louis to try to get started. So I'll like meet up with them, get to know them. And then like, if they ever have a project they want world building on, I'm like, I'm this, it's a thing that I pride myself of being able to do. So the creative process specifically and like ideating worlds and how they're connected and how those can tie into mechanics and things like that is something that I'm extremely passionate about. So in your, research and in your it seems like as you've fallen in love with like this kind of thought process and figuring out why this works what um you know what what uh what kind of things do you find yourself drawn towards when it comes to like generating creative ideas yourself mm -hmm. so i i think like um one of the things that made me really get into this, not because I wanted to understand myself better, it's, it's part of that, but it's because a big part of my job, so I've been managing designers for the past 15 years of those 19 years. You know, and, and one of the companies, uh, my team members went to my boss and said, we want him to be our manager. And that happened a couple of times since then. So I was like, it seems like it's what I should be doing. Sure, that's amazing. Um, so, um, 
so it's, it's been a, it's been a, a big part of my role as I manage designers a lot. And like sometimes uh, big teams, like, you know, there were, there, we, there were jobs and I was managing a team of like 80 plus designers. Um, and sometimes you will be part of a design org uh, across multiple uh, countries, which should like, you'd be talking in a chat channel with over 200 designers. Sure. Right. Um, you come across uh, uh, a lot of commonalities, especially when you're at a design director kind of level in which like a bunch of designers will often come to you as like, I have this idea, or I have this game idea, or I want to do this idea, or like, our company is very innovative, or our company is not innovative enough. This is what I think of originality. These are what I think of ideations. This is my method of ideation is all of that. Um, so, you know, like, to some extent, sometimes it was in my role, I would hear ideas or pitches three to four times a day sometimes. Sure. And when I work with students, you know, like that happens a lot as well, because like all yeah. you see is like, you know, people like I came into this industry to work on these ideas and you hear these ideas and all of that stuff. And I started to see uh, uh, commonalities and how people feel about their ideas. How do people come up with ideas? A lot of the times the ideas themselves. So I was like, <laughs> how, how do people from different cultures, different territories that know nothing about each other come up with almost identical ideas sometimes and yet believe that is completely like they're, they're the first people that thought of it or something like that. And then, <laughs> sure. and then like, how does it happen that sometimes somebody does do that? You know, like come up with something that nobody else have thought of as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, so that made me like, you know, go into this and like start to, to, uh, to kind of like try to understand where do these things come from? So um, to try to summarize, I guess, a bunch of the things that um, that uh, so, uh, not all of it is just research. Some of it is um, also speculation and theorizing by myself. So sure. Uh, sure. I guess as, as part of why I want to put it in a book, because hopefully that will start a debate and like, you know, we'll get some counter ideas or discussions coming out of that too. So creatively, you can't create what you don't know. So even if you create something new, it has to be, uh, it has to have some kind of root into a knowledge deep within you somewhere. Sure. Sure. Stephen King always said that, like, you may not have to write about settings that you know, but if you're writing about a setting you don't know, fill it with people you do know. Uh, Stephen King's, like, I think 90% of his books are in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, is no, which is no coincidence either. Right. Um, but, but generally like, you know, the, the I guess it, like energy of any kinds, it just can't, can't manifest out of thin air Sure. as a, as an act of creation. It comes from somewhere. And so you can yeah. create what you don't know. Um, that's, that's the one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that, um, our, um, and this is why, uh, humans are so much better than creativity than machines. Uh, it's because um, uh, the way we analyze and compress information is flawed because it's not completely focused. Right, right. When, uh, so because of the flaws, uh, our inefficient thinking is the fuel of our creativity. Yeah, it's where character is born, right? It's where like things get their uniqueness is because as much as we... And I'm kind of maybe hijacking a set for a second, but it's Go as much it. as we might come up with the same idea. Like if you come up with an idea for one thing and I come up with an idea and they're similar, 
it's still going to be founded fundamentally on like different backgrounds and different upbringing. Like our experiences are so different that even if it looks the same, there are going to be elements that come from our lives that can't be replicated. Correct. So originality comes in from reflecting on our um, rare experiences yeah. and our unique perspectives. So the first part of originality comes from um, the ability for you to sit in a room and reflect upon yourself and go like, all right, so what is, what are, what are, the, what are the things that I find unique in my perspective? And what are the things, what are the experiences that are unlikely for other people to go through? And how can I infuse right. that into whatever I'm doing? So that's originality. Creativity is basically, and like what I meant by inefficient thinking is that, <laughs> um, I'll use it in an example. You probably have been in an experience in which like you've had something in the back of your head. And then your friend is talking to you about, I don't know, they went to the supermarket and bought some vegetables. And then you're like, ooh, vegetables. That reminds me. Because like uh, vegetables, they're like fruit. And fruit has watermelons. And watermelons are heavy. So I could probably use a heavy object in this puzzle game that I'm building. And that will make that thing. So our yeah, inefficient yeah. thinking, like, it creates this like weird links between things that computers can never do. Because there is no right. logical link between them. Uh, but uh, we have that ability to do that because our brains function in that way, because they get distracted, yeah. they, they are sure. self-centered, because um, um, they, uh, they make connections with things that don't necessarily have to. They have their own perspective interwined in our own way of logic, and how we feel about things affect how we, logic, uh, how we, uh, how we create logical statements around things as well. So sure. <laughs> origi originality and ideas and creativity come basically from... Um, our perspective are on our own uniqueness and yeah. uh, how our brains are kind of tend to wander off. Yeah. I, I remember encountering a bunch of people saying the, like, I don't know the the it's kind of a stereotype now, but like the originality is dead. There's no such thing as original thought. I remember encountering a lot of that kind of ideology in college, mostly out of students. My professors were much mm -hmm. better about like prompting and cultivating creativity, but a lot of students would be like, Ugh. and one of the main arguments that they would level against originality and creativity is that there are only three stories. I don't know if you've ever heard this, that it's, it's uh, human versus human, human versus themselves, or human versus environment. Those are mm -hmm. the three stories. Um, <laughs> and I remember hearing that and just being so viscerally angry because like, <laughs> Those are such big, like monomyth, like they're, those are the archetype, right? That those are big archetypes that like, yes, most stories can fit into, but originality doesn't come from the, the rising action and the declension of the conflict. Your originality comes from the people doing it and the, like the little individual original things that build up to that stuff. So like you're saying, like it, original thought comes from our personal experiences and the weird super fucked up way our brains work. That's like, I remembered this thing. Cause you mentioned the thing that's completely unrelated, but my brain went here and then here and then here and then here, or while you're writing, you're like, but what if, because I just wrote the word house, it takes place on a boat because house boats are a thing that I used to ride on when I was a kid all the time in this specific lake. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Your brain just makes all these weird connections. That's where creativity and uh, originality, I think, are in their most potent. Not yeah. when you're like trying to decide how you're 
climax is going to play out. It's exactly um, that. And I think like, you know, you know, from what your students were saying, it's something that we see a lot in uh, game development or, you know, game development students or something like this. There's an association between originality and radical innovation. And by radical right. innovation is that like, you know, uh, a game concept evolves uh, out of thin air, it appears, or like so a concept that is so new that we've never seen anything like it before, like a new genre or like, you know, Tetris mm -hmm. coming out of, of thin air or something like that. Yeah. Um, but the reality of that, like, you know, radical innovation is so rare and it comes like once in a blue moon that expecting it always as the synonymous for originality is unrealistic. Sure. And, uh, and not only unrealistic, it's probably not real at all, even. Yeah. What happens is that um, <clears throat> perceived radical innovation comes from years of what we would call incremental innovation. And I'll give sure. you an example that I like to use a lot in my class. Remember yeah. a time in the 90s where every first-person shooter used to be called a Doom clone? Yeah. Yes, right? I do. Every first-person shooter was like, this is a Doom clone. But now if I ask you, is Fallout 4 a Doom clone? <laughs> <laughs> right, sure. Right? It has nothing to do with Doom now, but it basically is maybe... 20 years of incremental innovation built on that uh, core start that also yeah. built on a bunch of other things before that. So like sure. an incremental innovation, when you like, you know, zoom into 1991, uh, 1990 to 1991, there's a bunch of games that look very similar because the incremental innovation that they've added within that very short period of time seems almost negligible. Yeah, it's but only over a few 10 branches. Years, right. But over 10 years... 20, completely different thing entirely. Bioshock has nothing to do with Doom, but they, you know, it's it's incremental on Doom for sure. Yeah, it's got Doom DNA. It's just so far removed, it's hard to tell. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, there's um, there's a there's a a thing that I've noticed with my students uh, just in the beginning of this semester in that like. And it's a thought that occurred to me, I think, right before the end of last year when I was talking to uh, Osama about his, his favorite games of last year, is that, like, mm. there are a lot of game designers and, and uh, developers that are a, of a certain age group that are in leadership positions right now that I think all have the same foundational memories, right? And just speaking about creativity the way we have been, like, I think that those foundational memories mean that we're getting experiences that are not, I don't want to say, like, copies of each other but they're similar and there's different ways you can see that they're all kind of related because a lot of people's if you would ask them they're like inspirational games or somewhere around mario and zelda and you know doom and things like that and it's interesting talking to students because like all of their inspirations are 20 years newer yeah and like i've like 60 percent of my intro to video game design class said out loud that their least favorite genre is first person shooters and I was, to me, that's amazing because from like the 90s <laughs> to the 2010s, that was the biggest. And it's still huge now. And most yeah. of my students don't like it at all. So it's interesting to see like how their experiences growing up are going to change the industry later where, you know, all of the things that we've taken kind of as like the norm, the regular are going to evolve over time. Like you said, those little incremental changes were like, yeah, something will be inspired by this, but drawn out over 10 years. What does that look like? Like what is the next? What is the the next generation of developers? What are their big games look like? And how to do, 
games like Skyrim and Fortnite inspire generations coming forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you are, no, we don't have to talk about what you do at your job. I don't want to do that because I'm sure that you have a lot of information you're not allowed to share. But if someone, <laughs> when I tell people that you are the vice president of editorial at Ubisoft, I've gotten a lot of people that are like, oh, so like an editor in chief. I'm like, well, no. Um, <laughs> what does that role entail? Like, what are you doing day to day? So, and uh, uh, so, I've, you know, I've always worked in game design. And I've always worked in the game design capacity. So in my role, it is <laughs> at its heart a design role to some extent. But it's yes. a, a bit more high level than being directly working on a project in which like, I will be working with several projects and multiple creative teams. Mm -hmm. um, and like helping those creative teams achieving their visions. So it'll be sure. about discussing like, you know, the creative vision of the team as they're working on the projects, um, having direct line of communication and supporting them as they're building their game. So um, it's about like, you know, um, it's a more of a centralized strategic and design creative role that sure. um, helps to like, you know, foster a creative environment across multiple franchises, locations, teams, etc. That's awesome. So just taking your, this recently, I don't know how, like your recently discovered passion for investigating the creative process, you've kind of landed yourself in a spot where you get to like really help in that specific like direction in a lot of ways <laughs> i mean like you know i i was uh, you know from a game designer i moved to a principal designer to a creative director then i was managing creative directors to this role it's kind of like a natural evolution um sure. but like you know i was heavily involved in the creative process of games for a long period of time now so yeah yeah that's awesome what uh what about the industry excites you right now? Like there's a lot of stuff changing, right? And we've got Microsoft <laughs> picking up moment. active never a dull moment. This year alone's been insane. Uh you've got Microsoft buying up Captain, Activision it's and Blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh PlayStation like 2 weeks later buys Bungie. Um I think that we're like on the to me it seems like we're on the the precipice. Like almost we're on the edge of moving into like a new, I don't want to say era of games that seems too big and like uh, exaggerated, but it does feel like there are more opportunities for teams to act with more freedom to make more things that they want to make going forward. And I think that's really exciting. Um, what do you think the next, you know, five, 10 years of games looks like? The You know, like the one thing that is, constant about video games is that they're they're always changing and the, the thing that makes like you know uh, the change in the video game industry so interesting is that we were always at the forefront of cutting edge so like you know the video games kind of like paved the way to a lot of things you know like you know sure. cd technology dvd technology blu-ray technology going to hd online multiplayer server uh free to play like all kinds of like you know now green screens um vr tech ar tech you know like we've always been cutting edge uh when it comes to uh, not only the technology that we use but also the business models that we've utilized as well sure and because you know the nature of the business when you like when you create something now that's the standards and now the expectation is that can they match it or make something better <laughs> so sure. 
Uh, like Arabs, we, t- we tend to just co- constantly one-up each other the entire time. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. That was something that so the uh, only... Rami mentioned, is that, like, we work, the game industry as a whole, people work too hard. They, they try too <laughs> hard to improve. And I was like, do you ever think that'll level out? And he was like, no. The next, no. Gen- the next generation of consoles will come out, and we'll be able to do new things, and we'll work harder again. <laughs> we'll just yes. keep uh, one-upping each other. Yeah, exactly, and like, and it's, uh, and it's, and it's because, like, there was never a point in which, like, okay, so this is like how the gaming industry is going to be now. So we're just gonna chill for the next decade. Never happened. Oh, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> like, or like, this is not. We have the know-how now for the PS2. All right, let's make a couple of games. Oh, now there's a PS3. Okay, let's you know, let's start up again and like you know do this one more yeah. time. Oh, there's touch screens now. Oh, great. All right, so we use a stylus. Oh, no, we don't use a stylus anymore. Okay. <laughs> so it's um, it's ever-evolving, so that's that's the nature of it. And it's, frankly, why I love it. Because, yeah. like, if, uh, like, I can guarantee that for, <laughs> for, for until I stop doing it, I'm going to always be learning. Sure. Yeah, there's and always going to be, there's always going to be something new. You mentioned yeah. it earlier with like learning tools, even like I'm really good at using these tools in five years. That's not going to matter because those tools are going to evolve. Those tools are going to change. Um, exactly. It's um, it's amazing because there's there's constantly I don't know if if uh, there's good parallels, but there's constantly the feeling to me, at least in other industries where like they've reached a point and I don't think it's a point in any industry that like, keeps them from moving forward, but like film for a long time uh after the early 2000s and like the onset of digital um cameras right being used for making cinematic movies like it felt like this is the thing and they kind of operated (laughs) in that space and yeah the digital cameras got better and we got imax but like that kind of was the mode for a minute and there are people like christopher nolan who are mainstays of using you know uh film and that's fine that's always going to be a thing we have people now that are making games that are like very ps2 ps1 style graphic graphically um because like that's a thing that they gravitate towards but uh the game industry is this constantly evolving and changing thing so it's it's both fun and uh as a journalist a thing that is like a constant reminder that you'll never catch up is that like there's so many games that come out and you're trying to like look at them critically and 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 you know gain information from how they did something to look into how to do something else but i think it it creates this like super creative atmosphere that's just like we have if we're gonna keep making these we have to keep figuring out how to do things how to do things differently um and yeah and like you said like it, we're bleeding we're cutting edge in like all of these different uh directions like the fact that mandalorian is made with giant uh, LED back screens that are running Unreal is insane to me. Right? I, remember, I remember finding <laughs> that out and being like, what the, this is incredible. And yeah. then like James Cameron, who made Avatar, waited for the technology to make Avatar. The technology he used in Avatar is something that was, had been in games for years. Like if you've played Forge in Halo and you fly your little camera around, you're just flying a camera around a digital set. And he really wanted to use those in, mo- in, the, in a movie. And now he's filming the next one. And like he said, he waited for the technology to come out. And in my brain, I'm like, he started filming right after Mandalorian started using LED walls. So I bet James Cameron found something that the game industry got to 
and went, ah, now I can use that. And that's awesome. Like we're constantly creating tools that like the whole world wants to use in a thousand different ways. It's, it's, uh, it's really fascinating. And like, we have definitely now grown from being a niche hobby to we are mainstream, right? Yeah. And like uh, mainstream, you know, like gaming is huge. Everybody games. And now, like, you know, the, you know, like the, the, the time when like you and I used to, you know, keep up with what's going on was like, you know, when <laughs> When 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 what makes sense like we are just you know a few of us playing games so we could keep up with like the yeah the the games that are coming out um, and like you know you could play all the games and you could even be good at a couple of them <laughs> sure but but now like you know it's kind of like when somebody says like I play games it's like somebody says I play sports which one yeah yeah sure you know. Like the, the gaming, the gaming sphere is large enough and there's enough specializations in between it that we have like, you know, that we have like different types of gamers that plays very specific type of games that probably are even unaware of other uh, types of games. You know, like people are playing LOL or Dota, for example, probably completely unaware of the, the player type that only plays MLB the show. Or sure. like has, like has no understanding of the people that are only playing Candy Crush. They're only the no understanding of those people that are only playing FIFA, or Forza. You know, like there's yeah. there's enough diversion in the game industry. Uh, there's uh, and there's enough uh, there's enough room for everybody to kind of find their niche and kind of stick with it. Yeah, one hundred percent. Or multiple niches and want to stick with them. So it kind of makes sense that it's a, it's it's almost as an age, though it's upcoming age of both divergent and <laughs> coming together at the same time. You yeah, know, like sure. um, how can I get uh, all of these people to kind of come together in one place, or like how can I make sure that there's um, the needs of different people satisfied uh, through the, towards the different sport that they like to play, so to say. Yeah, sure. There's different, there's like reasons to make something that's very specific for a very specific audience and also things that offer a multitude of things to do so that multiple audiences can come in and find their little, their little pocket of happy. Uh, it's actually something that I've become super familiar with over the last couple of years because my, my grandmother has played games for about a decade. Um, she started playing like Borderlands 2, I think, Borderlands 1 back in 2010-ish. Awesome. But my mom my mom recently got an xbox like three years ago and so every monday my uncle and i it's three generations of our family it's me my uncle my grandmother and my mom all decide to play a game together and the best example i have of people like who play games all the time thinking a specific way and people who are just getting into games not knowing those specific ways to think was playing anthem which Aww. uh I we really enjoyed playing, but like my uncle and I went into it because we played it when it first came out. And we we're like, it's a good game, but it's missing some stuff. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. And like, there are some things that we'll have to like try and avoid because they don't exactly work, whatever. Uh, but I remember my mom and my grandma getting into that game and all they did was gush. They're like, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's a blast. There's so much to do. And my uncle and I were like, oh, we're both jaded assholes. Like we play games too much <laughs> we're, we're weighing all of them next to each other and maybe that's not exactly the right thing to do um but the fact that like my my grandma has her games 
like the ones that that appeal to her. She's put like twenty days into Destiny or Destiny Two. It's insane. <laughs> she plays that game all the time. Well, it's funny that like she can she can parse a first person shooter really well, but if you try to go play a third person adventure game, she's like, well, where do I go? Um, okay, and I think it's it's interesting that like we who have been playing games for thirty years know like okay. I need to move left to right, right? That's how it started. Uh, and then like, oh, okay, now I need, to know I need to follow the light, looking at like level design and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's cool that like everybody's perfect game exists, I think. And if it doesn't exist, it will. It's just yeah. a matter of like finding it. Because Absolutely. there are, like you said, there's so many options. There's so much diversity in the game space. Um, like I said, my students don't like first-person shooters, but they all could share with equal passion their favorite thing. Um, and there are people in the room that had no idea that like these games existed. People mention the games, <laughs> and they're like, what is that? And then they look it up, and they're like, oh, my God, this might be my thing. <laughs> Man, like, you know, every week uh, when the, the three of us uh, with Rami and Osama, we get together and talk about the games, like, and we're like, we play a lot, and like, we're trying, we're trying to keep up and be and be in the, in the industry, and we know so many people that are making a lot of these games, and it will still go like, I'm playing this game. Oh, I've never heard of this one before. <laughs> you know, like it's it's not a rare occurrence. It happens every week. Like, um, yeah, the, the one of us will surprise the rest of a game they haven't heard of or like never got the chance to play or something like this. Um, yeah. Which is cool. Like, you know, more options is great for everybody, I guess. And like, you know, and you find your game, you find your people and have yeah. fun. That's that's what it's all about, ultimately. Yeah, 100 percent. I'm I'm most excited uh, for at least what I seem to see happening a lot is I'm most excited for the the kind of co-op experiences that we're building, because you mentioned earlier <laughs> that like earlier in life, like you were competitive at some games like you, you played competitively in some games and now eh, not so much. And something that like me and my friends are realizing is like, I used to really get into Call of Duty. I don't anymore. It's <laughs> fun for a few days. And then I'm like, this is too much. Um, we still play Battlefield all the time because I don't never get tired of that game because like it's it's the difference, right? Call of Duty is so fast paced, and I like that in Battlefield I can just take my time. Playing a Battlefield Four <laughs> or Battlefield Five or Battlefield One or Twenty Forty Two map where I'm like I'm just gonna go do my own thing over here and not engage <laughs> with the big hairbrained mess that is over here. Where Call of Duty is objective, like, I see. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, you called me out. No, what we do, what we often do, actually, if we're playing Conquest or something like that, is we'll pick up a, a, a single objective and stay there. Because yeah, a lot of people yeah. will jump between them. And, like, uh, we've always found out, like, Battlefield Five, we had this happen almost every night where we would, like, take a point, move on to the next point, and the point we just took would get taken back. So yeah. we would just go back and forth. So we, we ended up, we're like, there's five of us and there's 27 other teammates. We'll manage this one. And hope that they can manage those. Um, but I like that because in, in Call of Duty, you're just mashing into each other at a full speed. Um, but over the last several uh, months, I would say, we've all kind of discovered, again, outside of the ones that we love, Battlefield and Halo for me specifically, like outside of those, we much, we much prefer PvE experiences. So we've got a lot of like, gtfos and um we're playing like space engineers right now which is speaking of you know incremental change like space engineers is minecraft but for people mm. that really really love space 
It's all about <laughs> building ships and stations and going into space and building battleships and stuff. It's great. Um, <clears throat> do you do you also find yourself moving out of competitive games because they're not your speed, or are you noticing that like as you get older and play games longer that you're looking for different things? I think it's um, it's a bit of it's a bit of both. So like initially it started off as like if I want to play a game competitively, then I can't really play anything else. Um, if like if if sure. like if you take if it's sure. playing a game like Dota or playing a game like Street Fighter, then I'm like if I'm not playing against other people, that I'm just playing and practicing. Um, or like you know yeah. I'm in the practice room working on my combos, working on my execution and stuff like that. So like you know to play a game at a competitive level, especially once online play became a thing, and then the YouTube and Twitch and like. Somebody would learn something at a part of the world, put a YouTube thing on, people would learn it, now they're learning something else. So like competitive uh, level rose so high that you kind of need to keep up and practice and all of that stuff. So to play at that level, you kind of have to, or like even uh, aspire to play at that level, then you can't really play much of anything else or like very little of other games. So in my line of work, that's, <laughs> that doesn't work at all. You know, in yeah, game design, sure. you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta know what's going on. Yeah, it's like, it's like writing, right? You can't be, I think, in my opinion, you can't be a good author or writer if you're not reading. And you yeah. can't just like only read one series of books. You have to read all sorts of things. So as a game exactly. designer, like, and as a journalist myself, uh, and game designer, because I've done both, like, mm. people are like, why don't you we would play destiny for long periods of time. And after a certain amount of time, I would just go, I got to play something else. It's not that I don't like the game anymore. It's that like, I need to keep experiencing new experiences to like, keep, you know, molding and honing my, my craft. And so like playing one thing only, it's not, it doesn't work for me anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So that's like a a big reason of why. And uh uh second of all like uh, you know competitive uh, gameplay was very tense <laughs> um so like you know any kind of like you know once the game uh, once like the match is over like i had fun but oof, am i relieved now that i can breathe again <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know like as i got older i want less of that in my life you know like we <laughs> sure. arabs we have we have a lot of heart issues in our families and stuff like that <laughs> Oh, like, you know, I'm nearing the age where that could be a thing. So, no. <laughs> you, you don't want to contribute to it by playing a game that makes you too tense. I don't want to do that also. Like, yeah. No, yeah. I, 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 I played. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go for it. Man. Uh, I, I played a game of, uh, I've started getting back into Apex, which Battle Royales are like, if we're talking about games that make you tense, <laughs> they are <laughs> the epitome of that. And I stopped That's playing cool. Apex for like a year. Uh, and then my buddy and I have come back to it. And just a couple nights ago, I was one, I was streaming, which is already like you're up, you're up a level cause you're interacting with people. But we had a game where like both of my teammates went down and there were two teams left. There were two other teams left and I was hurt and I had to like run away and hide and heal. And then they started fighting and I started like peeking and sniping at them from like a hundred meters away and like hitting shots, which meant my anxiety was going up. Cause I was like, Oh my God, it's working. <laughs> And then, like, the gunfire started to die down. So I was like, I got to move up and do something. And, like, I ended up winning the game, which I never once had any disillusion that I was going to be able to do. But for the next, like, five minutes after that, 
I was like trembly and like my heart rate was racing and I was like, I need to calm down. And like at one in the morning, that's not a thing that I need. No, no. I'm fine with that during the day, but late at night and if I finish a game, I'm like, time to go to bed. I stare at the ceiling. So I end up having to like go outside and drink water and smoke a cigarette to like calm myself down. Man, I played a couple of thousand hours of Dota 2. And uh, in that game, when 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 you're winning, it's one of the best feelings ever. And but when you're losing, <laughs> yeah. when you're losing, it's one of like you know, one of the worst feelings ever. And like you know, yeah. the last thing you want to end your day in is that an hour of you getting stomped in Dota. That's yeah, just terrible. Sure. That's yeah. terrible. And it's like late at night, it's <laughs> one a.m. You're trembling. You're losing. I go like. My heart rate is up. I can feel my ancestors' um, heart disease descending on me, and I need to and I need to go to sleep because yeah, of this sure. game. Yeah, nah, man, nah, can't do this. Can't nah, do this. Don't anymore. need that. I don't need that. Yeah, we don't won need that this game. In my life. <laughs> we won that game, and I was like, I am done with this game tonight. We won. I'm excited, but I'm not going to play again and have a bad. Exp- this, I'm done. And then I went and played some. I played. I think I went and played MLB the show because, like, that, I played baseball myself for like ten years. That's that my great. comfort game. I'll just play it, calm down. It's fine. Oh, and then ironically, that game I ended up coming back and winning in the ninth inning, which meant I was like excited and super energized again. Uh, you're like, on the road that sup- night. Yeah, I was like, you're supposed to calm me down. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I love it though. I love it. I also love that like. I'm not the only one that's going through this. It's one of my favorite, like the game industry is really good for this. I love it. Like you think that, like we've talked earlier that you're alone or you don't belong and everyone's like, oh no, no. Yeah. We're in the same place. Like being experiencing that, like, oh, I don't know if like competitive first person shooters are my, like, I want to do this everyday thing. And then realizing people my age are also coming to the same conclusions of like, yeah, no, I, I'm an adult. I need to go to bed so I can wake up in the morning and go to work. Uh, <laughs> I don't play those games at night. It's like, oh yeah, cool. Uh, so you being like, yeah, I can't, I can't practice those all the time. And also I don't, <laughs> I don't want to invite any ancestral heart problems because I'm just constantly oh, yeah. tense. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. So what, uh, what are you looking forward to the most, um, out of games, like, uh, of, you know, being a, being a developer, a designer, a, a, a student of games yourself, mm. like the, the industry is moving in directions. There's no one direction, right? There's no one yeah. way the the industry moves. What, uh, what has you excited though, that you've seen in the last couple of years that you think is building to something even cooler? Hmm. That might be a tough question. <laughs> oh, it is. It is a good one, though. It is a good one. I uh, like you know one of the things that I've seen like you know building up further and further is that um, uh, Nintendo the Switch has been like an absolute uh, monolith of a system that just keeps on going. Um, sure. You know, surprised everybody in 2017, and like up until now, it's still one of the top selling um, uh, hardware. Everybody loves that thing, and it was at a time in which we thought portable gaming is not going to be a thing anymore. Nintendo comes out and like proves everybody yeah. wrong. That that was pretty cool. So like you know, how Nintendo is going to be building on that success and how they're going to be moving forward with that is one of the things I'm very looking forward to see. 
this year i'm very looking forward to see what they're gonna show us with zelda well my favorite sure. one of my favorite gaming franchises i'm definitely looking forward to that um the you know like what's happening over the past couple of months is, is impossible to ignore like where is that leading sure. up you know like uh, game pass like yeah. services uh what is sony's uh, response um how is everything coming together towards the cloud i'm interested in that as well sure um like you know regardless of how the stadia came and went i uh, <laughs> i think the, sure. the concept of cloud gaming i think as a uh, might have been a bit too early sure like the first vr like i don't think it was a bad idea i think we yes. were just we just weren't ready for it at that moment exactly exactly yeah. so i'm wondering like you know if the infrastructure was there if like you know low latency internet is commonplace and like we've had the right services that provide these kind of uh experiences what does cloud play really mean sure. um not only for the games they offer or the easy of interest but what does that mean if you're designing a game for that in mind sure um uh, so yeah there's a lot of that uh, uh yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are kind of coming together like they're starting right now that's very interesting to see um uh what is the next innovation in vr tech sure. it's just been like you know an improvement quite a bit we were talking about imagine a headset without attaching it to anything and boom we have two of those already yeah um, sure what's so next where's right the, how do what's we keep next? going yeah exactly so yeah the the there's like you said um there's just stuff evolving on so many different vectors it's uh so exciting to see yeah it really speaks to that that creative that creative you know property of games too that like the coolest thing is that there are things that we don't know how they're going to develop we just know that they are that they're going to keep iterating yeah. and keep designing new things um yeah one of the things that i think is really interesting is like the way games are being made right now um obviously that's a mm. process that always changes but like i remember a few years ago i think it was the ceo of take two uh i don't remember who it was i think it was him though he was talking about like how video games could potentially over time start to develop games a little more like the way movies are developed as more tools and more engines are used in more like broad and also specific fashions that like the tools will get good enough that we'll start to be able to make games faster that's the hope at least right is that like mm -hmm. yes they're getting more and more expensive right now but i still think we're kind of iterating on tools until we find that perfect that that tool that fits perfect in rhythm with us um I think that that's super interesting, though, because uh, and this is something that uh, I think I've spoke with Rami about and that I've heard Mike Bithel uh, also talk about is that there used to be a more defined like middle class in games, um, yeah. so, like a more defined double A and that like that was a really good place for people that wanted to get into games to start because those studios kind of constantly made stuff in like one and a half to two year cycles and people would come in and then kind of move up until they couldn't anymore and then move on to bigger studios that are looking for people with that experience. And those kind of don't exist right now. So I'm super interested to see how that develops because, you know, teaching students or being, you know, an, an amateur or an, uh, an independent um, game developer myself, like trying to work with a studio that I would love to work with is 
difficult because they're all looking for, you know, five years experience and one ship title or two ship titles. Yeah. And indie studios don't have the money to hire people. So like, it's kind of right now a make it yourself until you can get hired kind of a situation. And I think that there's a potential Mm -hmm. that in the future we could see more uh, studios and, and, and like publishers with the ability to like be a starting place for people. Um, have you seen any indication of that? Has is that something that you've ever thought of as being a thing that the game industry's rebuilding yeah. towards? So I, th- I think the the what what uh, what you mentioned that Rami and Mike was talking about um, has happened, in which like um, you know there there used to be like um, a middle class of game development as they right. call it, and it kind of and it kind of went away for a while, and now I believe they're coming back, um, sure. be- and I think it's because. There's a demand on on games to come out, but uh, the 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 size of triple A games and some people even call them quadruple A games have just gotten yeah. so big and the budgets have gotten so high that very few studios in the world are capable of making them and financing them, which means that you know that you're not getting one every week. <laughs> sure, you're getting you're getting a select bunch of these in a year. So. There's there's a market obviously for people who want to play like this size of games, but there's also like a, a very big market that want to play these kinds of games and other stuff while they wait for these kinds of games. Sure. And that's like where I think there's a lot of uh, there's there's the small one person size indie uh, game developer and there's a room for that as well, as well as that there's the twenty people, thirty people, fifty people, up to one hundred people studio. So I think like there's. On the same game pass, let's say there will be a yeah. bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, games from a variety of different sizes to cater for all of these different uh, tastes in games that we're talking about mm-hmm. that just come from um, so many different uh, budgets and whatnot. So I think where, where we used to have where we used to be a time in which you're either AAA or AA or indie, now it's uh, a very wide spectrum. Of sure. uh, of budgets and game sizes, <laughs> yeah, and there's a room for all of it, uh, uh, in a way. And I think there's a need now for all of it as well. One hundred percent, yeah. Like you said, they all create a, such a diverse offering that, like, there is there. It's, it's possible for there to be something for everybody, which is only possible mm-hmm. because there's so many different kinds than different styles and different types of studios out there making yeah the one man like the eric barone one man team stardew valley versus the 300 employee like ongoing destiny right those are wildly different things um but appeal to also wildly different people in many cases Uh, exactly yeah what do you think that that means for you know people getting into the industry going forward do you think that that diversity allows for more people to get in or do you think it muddies the waters and makes it hard to decide where to get in i think i think having options is way better than not having options so sure. i think it sure. it widens the the entry funnel and most importantly is that every now and then if uh, one of those uh, mid-sized games really make it big then they will go bigger then they're creating jobs. And then the people that made them, they go out, they make their own smaller studio. All of these people are hiring and then they grow together into a different thing. And sure. if you're really lucky, 
this mid-sized studio that really made it is in a country that doesn't have a lot of large-scale development, then they become the large-scale developer. That springs out a lot of other small studios that have the experience to make it. And all of a sudden you have a very, not all of a sudden, over a course of some time, you would <laughs> sure. have a very vibrant gaming community in a country that, uh, or a territory that perhaps wasn't known sure. for... Um, for game development at all. And uh, we, we spoke about this in the podcast uh, a bunch of times about like how uh, Poland, for example, wasn't uh, known for game development. And now it's a game development powerhouse. Sure. And it's like, all well, it took for a bunch of games to really come out of Poland, make it uh, make a big success, grow, uh, grow the studio, grow the people, indie studios come out of it. And like, you know, it flourishes, uh, it yeah. flourishes because of this. So I think it's, uh, it's always great. To uh, uh, like you know, uh, to have a lot more uh, options, especially if you're starting out to go in. So you know, yeah, you can you can try out for an internship in one of the big companies. You can try to apply for a junior position in one of the mid-sized companies because they can't afford a lot of the senior talent sometimes. Or you could like you and your friends could try to uh, to do it on your own and see how that works out for you. So like. Now there's a, a lot of different ways in which you can approach this. And I think yeah. like even more recently, you can like join a distributed team in multiple places around the earth. Now that's an option. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, a very common option a couple of years back. So and now, now it's more commonplace. Like all remote studios. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, exactly. Even like, you know, established studios go like, we'll hire anybody, even if remote. So now all of a sudden, like, oh, I can work for this big studio without having to move for whatever, like, you know, uh, personal situation. And that's even more uh, options that are now available. Yeah. It's, it's still a difficult industry to get into. I understand that. I've, I've been a victim of sure. that myself. Um, and, I've, and I understand the reasons why it happens uh, regularly. But, you know, it is getting better for the reasons that we're mentioning. Sure, 100%. It's, it's always interesting to see that cycle of, like, smaller studio finds some success gets a little bit bigger then the medium studio finds more success and gets a lot bigger and then like the fact that it's a lot bigger means that there are people in the area that become interested in that process of work that means smaller studios pop up and then as bigger studios exist longer you see members of bigger studios leaving this those big studios and oftentimes staying in the same area starting their own smaller studios and it's like this weird, it's like a garden, like the big plants then seed smaller plants that then grow and seed smaller until you have this big flourishing, I guess not garden, exactly. but like forest. Like if you're in Montreal, you can throw a dart in the air and it will land on the head of a game developer. They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, if you're in Seattle, it's the same. If you're in, in LA, if you're like, there's, there's places that just, the, it's like the under, uh, the bottom level, right? The what's the bottom level of a forest called? The undergrowth is just seeded mm -hmm. with developers yeah. and creative people, and like putting them all in one area allowed them to, you know, ideate together and create together. And now that that now that the internet is as prolific as it is, and that remote work is possible, the ability to spread those creative tools and the creative process is just it's it's almost wide open. It's broadened. You can do it anywhere now, and it's great. Precisely. So, I, like I said, uh, you are in Sweden, and uh, it's evening for you. I don't want to take up too much of your time, and I've already taken up an hour. 
I have two questions that I ask everybody. I've asked right. Rami and Osama this, and their, in- their answers were interesting. We didn't talk about Osama's food fight game um, game design, uh, a game dream game, <laughs> where you fight <laughs> as different factions of a food court in a mall. We will have to have both of y'all on and talk about fighting games because we. I, well, I, I, I didn't, we didn't talk about that this time. That, that, that's just me planning ahead to make you guys come back. Um, <laughs> so the first question is: What uh, game? If you had like, money, uh, money, time, resources is not an issue. What one game would? What one game or franchise would you um, resurrect? Something that you loved that hasn't been made in a long time. What would you bring back? Mm. It's a tie between uh, oh I have I have multiple ideas popping in my mind. All right, so Soikoden. <laughs> you can list them. Go ahead. Soikoden. Soikoden. Okay. I love Soikoden. Yep. Uh, another Chrono game. Out of Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross, sure. a third one of these, please. <laughs> yes. Uh, a Dino Crisis. Wow. I haven't thought about that game in a long time. It's been a while. Yeah. Dino Crisis would be great. And Earthbound, a new one. Sure. Yeah. So many. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, And then the the second question is, uh, if you could make one game about food, what, what kind of game would you make? How would you make it? Has to be a ramen place. A ramen place. Yeah. Okay. Ramen is one of, is one of my favorite food ever. Oh and, man, uh, it rules. Ramen is amazing, and the process of making ramen is so intricate and Dude. detailed, and allows for a lot of room for creativity. So no two ramen shops taste the same, even though they taste very close. Yeah, it's also sure. a job of passion because, like, no matter how ah. fancy your ramen is. You cannot price it more than a thousand yen, so right. um, it's very little margin. So, yeah. and like you work lo- long hours, you have to make a lot of these things, and um, you know you, you don't make that much money at the end of the day. But you know, people that open ramen shops, uh, especially in Japan where there's a lot of competition, they just really love making ramen. Yeah, and if sure. you speak to some of those people, they will they will speak for hours about the the intricate details, Dude, um, yes, and differences in making their like secret recipe, secret sauce, what makes it special, what are the best toppings, all of that. I it's amazing that you bring that up. <clears throat> again, we have to record again because we didn't talk about food enough. But like, <laughs> um, one of the last things, one of the last meals my grandfather and I planned before he passed, we were trying to figure out how to make ramen for the whole family. Uh, mm. We didn't end up doing it uh, before he passed. But this last year, my family, my, my wife and I host Christmas at our house. And everyone was trying to figure out what to make. And I was like, what if we made ramen? And they were like, uh, okay. So we made ramen and sushi. And I have a book by a guy named Ivan Orkin. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever watched Chef's Table on Netflix? I have. There's an episode dedicated to him. He's like a Jewish white guy from New York. A Jewish guy from New York. That opened a, a ramen shop in uh, Japan called Ivan Ramen, and so I have his cookbook, and his cookbook wow. walks through literally every aspect of his Shio ramen at Ivan Ramen. And <clears throat> like a lunatic, I decided that I was going to do this all in like a day. <laughs> Amazing! And I read the book, 
I read most of the book, but I guess not the last page before the recipe starts. And Ivan literally says in the book, if you are insane, you will try to do all of this in one sit down. Uh, most people will make like one or two things a week and then just do shop all the rest of the ingredients out. I, on Christmas Eve, started at 6 uh, and made broth from 6 p.m. until 2 p.m. the next day. Just constantly adding things, changing things, cooling, warming, all sorts of different stuff. And then, like, building out all of the different ingredients, right? There's, like, a sofrito you put in it and a, diff a, a double broth. So you've got, like, dashi and you've got pork mm -hmm. broth. Uh, I yep. made pork belly. I had uh, half-cooked eggs. I had menma and bamboo Ooh. shoots. Oh, my God, uh, man. That's a lot of work. <laughs> dude, it was so much work. I went to bed Christmas Eve at 4.30 in the morning and woke up at 7.30 to keep doing it. Um, but it was also the best Robin I've ever had. And wow. I tweeted about this well recently. Done. Like Over the last month and a half, I've spent – I've probably made – from leftovers and rebatching and doing it again, I've probably – run through 10 iterations of ramen you're 100 yep. correct it's such a open palette for creativity because like yes i have this guy i have this guy's cookbook but like the best bowl i made i didn't use any pork broth i used the leftover that's called chashu tare from yep. like braising my pork i used that as a broth base instead of pork broth and like it was <laughs> so much better it's amazing so if yep. yeah ramen is the best <laughs> And ramen that is, is like you. So that is also within like uh, what is it? You said Shio ramen, right? And there's like yeah. four or three other schools of ramen. That, Shio that and Shoyu and Tonkatsu, and, tonkatsu yeah, so and all much. of that stuff. So, so like, and within them, there's so many other different types of rooms for creativity as well. And like, there's also Tsukumen, which like takes you a yep. little bit out of ramen into a kind of ramen. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's and so then much there's like the, the brothless, like yakisoba, which is largely ramen but minus broth and with more <laughs> vegetables. Like, yeah, it's great. Yeah. We have to do. We have to. I don't know if we ever meet and go eat. It's gonna be a hard decision whether I make you walk me through Arab tradition and food, or if we just both go gush over ramen. Maybe we do both. <laughs> <laughs> if it's any kind of food that's um you know it's one of my passions video games yeah. and food <laughs> yeah we should all be making more food video games is what i'm hearing because yes, like you're sure. you have very passionate ideas about food and games osama does <laughs> rami does like we should, there should be more games about food maybe we need to figure that but out but i'm a food consumer more than a food maker like i would never do what you did <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's also totally fine. I'll I, show up I the next think... day to eat it. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. One hundred percent. That's what we have to do. If y'all ever end up in St. Louis, I will make my ramen from scratch. That's how we won't go eat somewhere. I'll make that, and we'll just eat at my house. Uh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I'll be down for that. Hell yeah, we'll make it happen someday. Who knows? Uh, yeah, maybe after maybe maybe you'll end up in St. Louis for some weird reason. Well, Fauzi, I spent uh, I took up a bunch of your time, but I think we had a good time. I had, I had an time. amazing time, man. Thank this you for having might, me. This might be the best episode uh, a Habibi has had on my podcast because uh, we talked go. about there ramen. You so you can there take you that little badge of honor and hold it over Ryan Osama. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you made my day. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, you made mine. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to a little independent journalist uh, and and having such a such a good time. Um, if people wanted to follow you on Twitter or anything, how would they how would they do that? They can find me at uh, at Fauzi Mesmar, um, or they can uh, dig me up at thehabibis.com. Or if they just want to know more about me or my shenanigans, they can go to my website, fauzi.zone. Fauzi.zone. That's a good website. You're in the Fauzi <laughs> zone to, when you're there. You're in the Fauzi zone. It's easy to, <laughs> easy to, to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Easy to remember, easy to say. Um, if uh, anybody wants to follow anything that I do, nerdybits.com is the website. The Twitter account is nerdy underscore bits. Uh, or you can follow me personally at lubwub, L-U-B-W-U-B. Um, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Fauzi. This was great. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, and to wrap up our show, we always have a quote. I think it's George Bernard Shaw who said, uh, we don't get, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. So don't stop playing. Here, here. <laughs> here, here. And, uh, stay tuned and listen to our next episodes as they come out. Thanks for hanging out. And we'll catch you guys next time. I'll leave when you tell me to leave. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, let's see. It's pretty funky. I love it. Um, I, would, uh, I would turn my camera on. I didn't realize that it wasn't on. But whatever is comfortable for you, man. Yeah, turn on your camera. Let's let's hang out like we're actually sitting across from each other. There we go. Hey, perfect. Yo. <laughs> All right. Let me do the intro real quick, and then we'll get into it. Do it. All right.